Hello once again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science and all sorts of other interesting and wonderful things, uh, including uh, supernovae. We're going to uh, answer audience questions today, and our first one will be about that. We'll also be uh, talking black holes. It's odd that that comes up in an all-question episode. Uh, we've also had questions uh, about something that um, someone heard about in Australia back in the 90s and wonders if it's still happening. I can I can answer that one. And uh, Fermi bubbles and Mars and black uh, dark matter and uh, all those sorts of things coming up on this very episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? Oh, gosh. Um, how can I explain it? Busy. Yeah. <laughs> busy, busy, busy. Still looking empty behind you. Yes, yes. Um, Done more and more packing and getting ready for the, the big move, uh, which is only a few weeks away. And we're, um, yeah, it's it's flat out. I, I, unfortunately, my wife has uh, hurt her back. Oh, um, and, yeah. and that's it's not what you want for a move. No, no, but um, that these things happen at our age. You just, you still think you're 30 and you're not. <laughs> so things break. Yeah. <laughs> or get stretched stretch beyond their limits, I think would be a more apt description. But uh, yes, uh, couldn't have been worse timing. But yeah, if we weren't moving, it probably wouldn't have happened. No, you never know. That's right. Mm. Now, uh, how about you? What's happening in your world? Uh, busy as always, lots going on. I uh, I thought I might just mention, um, and maybe we've got listeners. Uh, in yeah, Maui. I think we've got one or two. In Maui. Oh, Maui, yeah. Gosh. Um, because um, Lahaina uh, is one of mine and Marnie's favourite places in the whole world. We've had many, many happy holidays in Lahaina. Uh, and so we've been devastated to see mm. the pictures of what it looks like now. You probably remember we got married on the top of Haleakala, which is yes. the extinct volcano nearby. And, of course, the connection with astronomy is that there are telescopes on the summit of Haleakala, yeah. including two quite significant ones. Pictures coming out of um, of that region are just they're, unthinkable. They are, aren't they? And yeah. and we we know what that's like. We've we've yeah. had that happen in our region twice in the last several years. Uh, so huge catastrophic fires wiped uh, wiped certain towns off the map completely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly threatened uh, the um, Siding Spring Observatory there, and uh, well, not just threatened, did do significant damage to the visitors' centre and the accommodation block. Uh, and and yeah, fires are a, a a common thing in this country, and we are all too aware of them. So our thoughts and prayers certainly go to the people of Maui. And um, I just, yeah, it's uh, all you can do is shake your head and wonder. Yeah, how it happened. How, the, how they're going to rebuild as well. Yes, so the it whole be so thing's gone. Mm. There was a few fantastic fish and chip shops in that street. That's not there anymore, and other yeah. lovely places to shop. In fact, some most of the clothes I wear came from shops in Lahaina, oh. which is a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, very, very sad indeed. Very sad. True. Uh, they will refill, though. They will, yeah. They're, they're people with stoicism and persistence, and it'll it'll come good. And I hope Manny and I'll find our way back there again sometime, not too far down the track. Yes, yes. Um, beautiful part of the world. Let's uh, go to some questions, Fred. And our first one today comes from Sandy in Melbourne. G'day, Andrew and Fred. It's Sandy here from Melbourne again. My question today is about the newly discovered supernova in the galaxy M101, also known as Pinwheel Galaxy, as I understand. Um, the Pinwheel Galaxy is around 21 million light years away, and the supernova is so bright, it's visible with a relatively small telescope, as I understand. How bright would a supernova be if it were to happen closer to home, such as around four light years away, the distance of Alpha Centauri? Would it be so bright that it'll be visible as a 
as brightly as our moon during the daylight hours? Or would it be so close that we'll be essentially toast? <laughs> Thank you again for such an awesome show um, and look forward to hearing the answer. Thank you. That's a positive question to start on. Um, would we be toast? Uh, well, yeah, um, it is a really interesting question. We're constantly on the lookout for these things. And uh, there's a couple of couple of brewing that I'm thinking about. So, yeah, how close is too close? What would it be like if one went off um, around Alpha Centauri? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we'd be toast. Oh, would we? Probably at that distance, yeah. At that distance, we'd be um, probably fried by neutrinos. Uh, sorry, there's a jet going by very low. Oh, okay. I'll be trying to stay into the range, right? Maybe so. Yeah, yeah. So um, the yeah the uh, um, four four light years is too close for comfort for a supernova mm-hmm. explosion. Um, Where. I mean, uh, Betelgeuse, the uh, star that's kind of keeps sending out clouds of dust that make its brightness drop. Um, I think it's that's about five hundred light years, roughly. Yeah. Uh, and if that turned into a supernova, it would be marginal that we would have any deleterious effect on Earth. Well, I think we would be at risk even with that. Um, the the other one is the Eta Carini, which is a star in the constellation of Carina, the keel, uh, passes overhead here in Australia once a day. Um, that is about 8,000 light years away. And I think we would probably see it, uh, you know, in some comfort. Although if it turned into a supernova, it would still be bright enough to see in the daytime sky. That's incredible. Uh, just as Sandy has said. Yeah, they're... Uh, they're not things to be messed with on supernovae uh, because they are so energetic. You know, so much happening, um, and the radiation that they emit um, across the uh, across the electromagnetic spectrum and in the particle domain as well uh, is pretty pretty overwhelming. Lots of it. It's just hard to imagine something so cataclysmically uh, cataclysmically enormous. Yeah, um, being able to do such devastation over such wide areas—it's unthinkable. Yeah, it's yes, that's right. Uh, it, it because they, you know, they that that's the thing about supernova. Their their radiation is not uh, like things like pulsars, where the radiation's beamed on a kind of lighthouse beam and it's rotating. With a supernova, it's isotropic; it's going out in all directions, mm. uh, and. Uh, there might be some directions where it's stronger than others, um, depending on the way the collapse occurs. But uh, as the as the star collapses into a black hole or a neutron star or whatever the end product is going to be, but it's yeah, very energetic. And as I said, we don't mess with them. No, uh, just let's say it did happen four light years away. Mm. Uh, we would we have any warning whatsoever, or would we be, you know, toast? By the time we discovered it, uh, yeah. Well, we, we would know um, that this there was a likelihood of this particular star. Uh, supposing Alpha Centauri was more like Eta Carini, uh, it would be monitored um, day and night, probably in great detail uh, to look at what was happening. It's uh, there aren't any stars in the sun's neighbourhood that are like this highly evolved and highly massive stars that are going to. Uh, undergo a supernova explosion. So you, you can be, I mean, the Alpha Centauri system is more than one star, uh, but they're all pretty stable stars. They're one, not ones that are likely to to do anything like that um, unexpectedly. So what I'm saying, I guess, is that you would, you, 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 there would be, it would be a particular type of star that would put us at risk of a nearby supernova explosion. And Alpha Centauri isn't one of them. Yeah. I, I did see a report fairly recently that suggested um, Betelgeuse could go gangbusters sooner than they thought. I mm. uh, don't know how much credibility is in that claim, but it did uh, it did seem that the, the question has been asked as to uh, how much sooner it may, you know, burst yeah. its bubble. Yeah, it could be 10,000 rather than a million years. That's The problem is you just don't know that, no. um, you know, 
Uh, I think the my kind of reading of the situation in the astronomy press is that um, I think most scientists are fairly relaxed about Betelgeuse. Uh, it, it's it's certainly a, a potential supernova, but I think they think we've got a while yet. Yeah. And, and what about uh, Eta Carina? Uh, uh, well, yeah. Um, hard to know. Hard to know. Mm. May have may even have gone off already, Andrew. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Uh, it's 8,000 light years away. It's got 8,000 years before the light gets to us. Yeah, but what if it was 7,999 years ago? <laughs> Could be arriving, yeah. Could be, yeah. Mm. All right. I think I think even even then though you'd have some idea uh, that things were getting disturbed and we were likely to see some something happening, yeah. you know, within the next year. If it if it was if it was seven thousand nine hundred ninety nine uh, years, if we had to fair it. warning, would it be possible to say you know get ourselves underground and protect ourselves from the radiation and you know. Stick around there for as long as it takes to get back out and well, it's a lot. Yeah, you're right. It becomes a civil defence issue. I think um, if if you're on the side of the Earth that's facing away from the supernova, you've got a better chance of being on the side of the Earth where you're not, mm. where you are facing it. Um, but yeah, underground might be good. Yeah, or just wrap your house in aluminium foil. Oh, oh, yeah. Need to wear it on your head, of course. Of course, yes. <laughs> yes. Or just line all your clothes with it. Or as the, we used to be told in the 1950s in the UK, a paper bag would do it as well. Paper bag would get, round, under, your, paper get bag. under your school desk. Yes. That used to be the, yeah. the way to deal with a nuclear attack, wasn't it? Get exactly. under your desk. Yes. Climb under yep. your desk. <laughs> all right. Um, thank you, Sandy. That's uh, a good question. And the answer is probably um, yes on all counts by the sound of it. Yes, that's right. As horrifying as that sounds. Let's uh, go to Sweden, and here's a, a, a text question from Johan. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, uh, one from your Patreon supporters. Oh, thank you. Uh, much appreciated. Love our Patreon supporters. Uh, and uh, I have a question about photons that's been bugging me for a while. My understanding is that even single photons can have a wavelength, uh, e.g. gamma or radio. The first one can damage your DNA while the other is harmless to humans. But what's the difference or what differentiates between them? Both have zero mass and travel at the speed of light. Where does the difference come from? All the best, Johan, in Sweden. Just the different amount of energy that they carry because the frequency is what determines the amount of energy. Lower the frequency, the lower the energy that this thing will impart whenever it is absorbed by something else. Uh, and so, yes, gamma rays uh, are absorbed by human tissue, and it don't do them any good. Uh, so it doesn't do the <laughs> doesn't do the gamma rays any good either. But it doesn't, or the gamma ray photons. But yeah, so it's just all about the energy. Okay, so um, there are nasty photons and not so nasty photons. Yeah, that's right, uh, and it's probably just as well that um, you know the Earth's atmosphere protects us from the nasty ones, uh, which include ultraviolet as well, uh, as well as X rays and gamma rays. Yeah, highly absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. But um, the atmosphere isn't strong enough to save us from a supernova. No, that's right. The, the, the intensities are so high that atmospheric attenuation. In fact, I think the atmosphere could get ionized, uh, so it knocks the electrons off the uh, off the uh, atoms. <laughs> okay, so. It's not a pretty sight. No. <laughs> no. Uh, but we do the human thing and joke about it anyway, don't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've probably got a dad joke somewhere about that. Probably, <laughs> yes. yes. So uh, avoid gamma rays. What other ones? X-rays? Get you know, Stay away yeah. from them. Yes, that's right. Uh, as you know, the early investigators of X-rays, uh, Professor Röntgen in Germany and uh, others, uh, discovered uh, when they got sick because they've been tinkering around with x-rays. Yeah, yeah I suppose that's happened in science um, off and on. Yes, in well, time where you, you, you're doing things and you don't realise you're exposing yourself to these situations until you realise you. <laughs> that's right. And um, it reminds me of um, Alan Alda's story. You know, he the star of MASH? Alan, yes. Is that his name? Yeah, Alan Alda. Alan Alda. Who became... Uh, 
very much uh, a very prominent science communicator, got really interested in science, followed up on lots and lots of interesting ideas. He wanted to write a book about Marie Curie, mm. who was one of the pioneers of radioactive materials. Uh, and so he went to Paris to ask to see her original letters. Uh, and they were all locked up in this uh, this lead case, and he couldn't see them because they're, they're so radioactive. Sorry, what did he go to see? Because we, you just dropped out. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Marie Curie's letters, uh, which uh, letters, uh, you know, written about the research that she was doing. Uh, these went out to various places, but uh, with them they carried radioactive isotopes. Uh, so they're they're all radioactive. So Alan Alda couldn't couldn't access them because they were radioactive. So he did a book on Einstein instead. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah they'd be they'd be hard to read. At least you wouldn't have to use a light at night. No, no that's right. <laughs> no, no, they were too too dangerous. Yes, indeed. Wow, that's quite incredible. I never realised that. Uh, thank you, Johan. And we've got uh, an audio question now from Dan. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, Dan here from the Gold Coast in Queensland. Uh, my question is, if you were floating in space by yourself and you were drifting towards a black hole, how long would it take for the effects of the black hole to start affecting you uh, the closer you got? And from there, the next part is, how long would it take for you to reach the event horizon? Are we looking at years or does time dilation kind of warp how you perceive that? Is there no real way to answer that? All right. Uh, cheers. Thanks for all your hard work. Boy. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I think we kind of alluded to this situation uh, last week or the week before, but um, uh, yeah, I, I suppose it's all relative, boom, boom, uh, and uh, has <laughs> a, a lot to do with proximity and, uh, you know, where you are observing things from. That's right. Uh, and and your speed. Man. Mm. That's the thing. Sorry, our puppies decided to celebrate <laughs> black holes there in the background. So um, I think I might have mentioned um, there are stars which are happily in orbit around the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, mm. whose distance from the black hole uh, are kind of solar system distances. You know, they're measured in a bit more than solar system distances. They're measured in trillions of kilometres, whereas we think of the planets being in billions of kilometres, or at least the distant ones. So um, it, it, so you can be in orbit safely around a black hole. Uh, that would change if um, these things were not, in, uh, not moving fast enough to stay in orbit. So it's all about what speed you're doing as well. Um, if you fly past a black hole at a fast enough speed, it won't pull you in. Uh, although as you approached it, you would start to see relativistic effects. And I think the spaghettification would start at quite a significant distance yeah. uh, from the black hole. Um, in fact, there, I don't know whether we mentioned this when it came up before, but there is a gas cloud that's currently being sp spaghettified by the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is being observed with radio telescopes. And its shape is changing. It's, it's getting elongated as it gets pulled in. Mm. Uh, towards the black hole, and I don't, I can't remember the distance of that, but I think it is measured in trillions of kilometers rather than wow millimeters. So yeah, that, yeah, that's another thing that has far-reaching effect. Uh, yes, <laughs> it is. Well, it's gravity. Gravity, yeah. gravity goes on to infinity. It falls away in intensity, but it never stops. And so you're always, you know, in some great gravitational field or another. Mm. So uh, I suppose I'm sort of steering away from the, the question of black holes, but um, does that mean perhaps that gravity does have some some sort of relationship with dark matter? Uh, well, uh, that it, it certainly does because that's that's the only thing that uh, dark matter reveals itself by is its gravity. Yeah, unless we've got Newtonian dynamics wrong. Uh, <laughs> Which um, um, you know we we sometimes talk about the the modified Newtonian dynamics theory, uh, which is a suggestion as to how we might have gotten that matter wrong. It's if accelerations don't behave like Newton predicted at very very low levels, mm. and actually there's some research that's in the in the um, 
a wind at the moment. It's in fact it's more than that. It's been been on uh, on the uh, interweb uh, quite quite notably. Uh, this is to do with binary stars, um, which are widely separated, which means they exert small gravitational forces on them uh, and allow you to test the idea at low, gravity, uh, low accelerations, the idea of MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. Uh, and it's looking a bit more promising for MOND. Um, so, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, so, Dan, yes, um, uh, a fascinating uh, issue that you've brought up, um, but uh, basically, yeah, it depends how fast you're going and point of view, et cetera. But uh, the effects of a black hole are far-reaching, as they are with supernovae. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Uh, this is Space Nuts with Andrew Dutley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a little break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. It's great to have Nord back on board as a sponsor of Space Nuts. And again, as a Space Nuts listener, there's a special deal available to you through a special URL. And uh, as a Space Nuts listener, there are plenty of uh, benefits. Uh, it's an exclusive deal. Uh, it's, uh, it's ready to go and you will save big for a start you get a 30-day money-back guarantee. Now, they've backed their product for a long time because it's the best there is. So that's a great way to start. So when you go to that URL, nordvpn.com slash space nuts, you'll see a button that says Get NordVPN. So you click on that and you can see all the options. Uh, there's a two-year plan, a one-year plan, or you can go month by month. But if you go with the two-year plan, it saves you a lot of money. Uh, but uh, you can also choose different plans within that uh, scope. So you can pay for high-speed VPN, and it is the fastest in the business. It comes with malware protection and a tracker and ad blocker. If you want to get uh, a few more bells and whistles, you can get the cross-platform password manager and the data breach scanner. Or you can go the whole hog, which is what I did, and get one terabyte of cloud storage as well, and the next gener generation file encryption. That's all available on the NordVPN deal as a Space Nuts listener. And just to throw a bit more into the mix, four extra months for free if you sign up through the Space Nuts URL. So check it out today. Uh, you can try it for 30 days. If it's not for you, that's fine, but I, I'm sure, like me, you'll be very impressed it's seamless, it works in the background, it protects uh, a whole range of devices and it is well worth every cent. So check it out today and get the deal as a Space Nuts listener, nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts. That's nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts. Now back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and getting with a go. Space Nuts. Yep, that's us, and we are going to go straight to our next question. This is Buddy from Oregon, I think. Here we go. Hello, Space Nuts. Buddy from Oregon. Uh, hello, Fred and Andrew. Hey, can you guys tell me what happened to that? I remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> about the only news I ever heard out of Australia was about the race from the with the uh, solar-powered electric cars. Um, and it seemed like in oh early nineties, I think it was, GM entered and, and uh, beat everybody by quite a ways. And did the race continue after that? Whatever happened about that? Uh, I heard GM made a made an electric car after that. Um, if you look into that, you might notice that that might be a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, thanks guys, love the show. Thanks, buddy. Uh, do you remember the uh, the Solar Challenge, Fred? Yep. I, yep, I think I do. it's been around since the, was it the late 80s? And it was Hans Tholstrup, if I recall correctly, that uh, won the first race and uh, drove his uh, solar car from Darwin to Adelaide, wasn't it? I think that's the that's the, the route, yeah, yeah, that way or the other way. And uh, you're right, that's the difference. They're not just electric cars. They're, these are solar-powered electric Solar-powered, yeah. I remember his car, that that very first one, it um, it just looked like a little bullet on tiny little wheels, had no suspension. I think it was just like driving a coffin, basically. 
<laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't much bigger than that. But uh, yeah, the whole aim of the race is to uh, use the sun's power to drive your vehicle, and they choose that part of the world because um, it, it it runs it, it runs in October, uh, which is uh, when you get much more sunshine, and and it's the best time of the year for the race between those two centres. But um, terribly hot driving across Central Australia that time of year. Worse later in the year. But, um, buddy, to answer your question, it is still going. It is still an annual event, the World Solar Challenge. You, you can look at their website because um, it, it um, is coming up again for the, from the 22nd to the 29th of October this year. Darwin in the Northern Territory to the capital of South Australia. So you're basically going from the Gulf of Carpentaria to the Great Australian Bight, uh, basically north to south across Australia, Central Australia, Darwin to Adelaide. It's a, a massive event, and it was uh, originally uh, designed as a, as a sort of a, I don't know, a test bed. There you go, 1982, solar pioneers Hans Tholstrup and Larry Perkins embarked on a quest that would see them drive a home-built solar car, Quiet Achiever it was called, across Australia from west to east originally. There you are. Inspired by this achievement and his own pioneering vision, Hans urged others to explore the boundaries of sun-powered transport and the World Solar Challenge was born. So uh, the first race, if you like, was inaugurated in 1987 and they've been basically racing across Australia ever since. Uh, it, it's a fantastic event and it, it, I suppose it was uh, instrumental in, in getting the focus on other forms of power away from... Um, uh, fossil fuels and and look at look at the situation today okay we don't have solar cars driving around all over the place but we do have solar panels on the roofs of a, a great number of homes around the world uh, alternative energies are becoming more and more prominent uh, and this race was one of the the reasons all that started and of course the advance in solar panel technology is um, is changing very rapidly. We've got solar panels on this roof. We've got uh, 19 of them, I think. And we to get a bigger system than mine now will generate more power with only 16 panels. Now we're talking five or six years time difference. It's just become mm. uh, so much more advanced and it'll just keep developing. The, the the standards are, are so high. But, uh, Buddy, your question was uh, well placed. And, yes, you'll be very happy to know that they are um, they're running it again in October. Uh, it's a Teams event and uh, they, they have uh, uh, scrutineers. The, the cars all have to meet certain standards, uh, just like any motor vehicle race. And they have to uh, operate within the regulations of the competition uh, and it's uh, it's all very highly professional and sponsored these days. And uh, yeah, um, I, I'm also amused that that's the only news you've ever heard come from Australia because I, I think we've done a few other things over the years, but <laughs> there it is. Uh, so um, yes, uh, we we um, we still run the World Solar Challenge every year uh, in Australia. Uh, thanks, buddy. Let's uh, move on to our next question. This one comes from Robert in the Netherlands. Uh, hello, guys. Love the podcast. That Aussie accent is a lot of fun. Uh, well, Fred doesn't have an Aussie accent. And um, I, I so love the grandeur of astronomy. Thanks so much for informing us. My question, how do you guys feel about the implications of the discovered Fermi bubbles? There was a Japanese professor who recently ran simulations proving they are produced by our very own Sagittarius A star. Do similar bubbles probably appear in every galaxy with supermassive black holes? And are they inferior? Uh, are they therefore uh, perhaps linked to the dark energy problem? Uh, excuse me, given their sheer size, could they somehow be responsible for the missing gravity effects? Thank you so much for answering this, uh, for it's not elementary, my dear Watson. Yes, I am funny. No, you're not, Robert. But anyway, thanks for the question. <laughs> I appreciate the joke. Uh, Fermi bubbles, you better explain what they are first, Fred, and then find out whether or not Robert is on the money. So these are, um, these are structures uh, around, uh, not far from the centre of our galaxy, uh, which are visible in gamma rays. So these are 
we were talking about high energy photons being gamma ray photons uh, as uh, uh, as a, few, a, a couple of minutes ago as um, uh, you know as a, as a comparison with what how, how the energy of uh, of different photons varies so the highest photons are gamma ray photons and we see gamma ray observations of the sky from various satellites uh, most notably the Fermi satellite, which is why they're called Fermi bubbles. Uh, these things are structures which look like giant bubbles above and below the center of our galaxy. Uh, and they stretch up uh, a total length of about 50,000 light years. Um, so kind of 25,000 on each side of the center of our galaxy. That's more or less a quarter of the diameter of the galaxy. So huge. These are huge structures. Um, so the explanation as to their presence is, yes, absolutely to do with the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. Uh, and so that the, 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 the black holes, um, are, you know, these black holes at the centers of galaxies, uh, when they are actively gobbling stuff up, they produce jets uh, perpendicular to their accretion disk, the disk of material that's being swirling into the galaxy. Uh, and that's when, when they get very bright in things like X-rays. Uh, and our gal galaxy currently uh, is quiescent in that regard. There's not much that much going on. It's about to uh, eat up a, a gas cloud, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is being spaghettified. Uh, but the, uh, the, the uh, jets of material uh, that they squirt out are quiet at the moment, if I can explain it as fountains of high energy particles. So in a way, the, uh, the Fermi bubbles are like fossils of previous activity. So it's when our central black hole was energetic in the past that the, 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 these jets of material squirted out and their interaction probably with the interstellar material in the galaxy is what caused the, the, the gamma ray activity and making these Fermi bubbles. So, so really, um, you know, an interesting aspect of uh, of our galaxy that was unknown before we had gamma ray telescopes in orbit. Oh, okay. Is that it? <laughs> Pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I should, no, that's all right. I should have shut up for questions there. Ah, no, we 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 have I think talked about Fermi bubbles before. We have, yeah. Uh, and I think the question about whether they exist in other galaxies is yes, they. I uh, think they probably do. Uh, they may be. I'm not sure how far away you can detect Fermi bubbles from. Uh, so you know, a distant galaxy, a few million light years away, uh, these things might be too faint for our gamma ray telescope. But I, I, I'm sure they will be there, uh, even uh, if we can detect them or not. Okay, very good. Thank you, Robert. Lovely to hear from you. Keep the jokes coming, but um, yeah, work a bit harder on them if you <laughs> mind. Yeah. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Okay, to our next question, Fred, this one comes from, uh, it, he always seems to pop up every fifth episode, does Martin? Hello, Space Nuts. Martin Berman Gorvine here, writer extraordinaire in many genres, with a question about everyone's second favorite planet after the Earth. You spoke uh, recently about the ancient dried-up riverbeds of Mars, and it just has me curious whether uh, we know anything about the ancient three point whatever billion years ago atmosphere of Mars and its composition and thickness. Also, whether there were plate tectonics on Mars at that time, as you have mentioned, there are not at present. And just so as you know, in my current science fiction work in progress, a training base for interstellar astronauts located on Mars is named after Dr. Fred Watson. Because, as he has pointed out in response to my previous silly questions, 
there is actually no point whatsoever in having such bases on Mars and other planets. Can't wait for the answer. Berman Gorvine over and out. Thank you, Martin. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, we're talking Mars a few billion years ago. Uh, what was it like atmospherically? So the thinking is that it was, um, as it is now, rich in carbon dioxide, but much higher pressure. Uh, and now, if it had life, that might have changed it a bit because living organisms uh, modify atmospheres. Uh, but I think um, the investigations that are currently going on with you know the likes of uh, Curiosity and Perseverance, the two Mars rovers uh, that are currently active on Mars, um, I think there's a good chance that we will know more about the atmosphere of Mars uh, from the research that they've done. And I think uh, the, the real uh, turning point is going to be when as I hope we will someday, when we get samples returned from uh, Perseverance, which has been caching little rock samples, uh, uh, I think 17 or 18 of them now, there might be more than that, in little cylinders uh, to be brought home by a future mission. Uh, on which work is currently going on? It's a joint European Space Agency-NASA mission, yeah. uh, which I think has been scrutinized recently by Congress, and I don't think they were that impressed. Um, with progress. So that's something that we might need to keep an eye on. But I know work is continuing. Uh, Sorry, you'll just have to backtrack a bit because you dropped out again. So um, uh, that's not very good, is it? No, that's happening. Don't know. Anyway, uh, where do you want me to start from, Andrew? Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't quite catch where you were going with the question, so I can't really indicate what you okay. were to say. Um Yes, let me uh, summarise by saying that we might know more about Mars's past atmosphere when we receive samples back from Perseverance, uh, which are already on the Martian surface. It's taken little samples of the rocks, uh, which are for future analysis by Earth-based laboratories when they come back. Uh, at the moment, I think that mission is planned for 2033, uh, but work is still ongoing with that. Mm, okay. And what about uh, plate tectonics? We know that there's no real movement within Mars now, but did it ever have plate tectonics? Good question. Um, the, the, the reason why I'm, I'm doubtful about this is that there's, there's evidence both ways. Uh, I think it may well have had at least crustal plates. So the evidence for a solid crust uh, comes from a number of uh, aspects, but one of them is the size of Olympus Mons, mm. which uh, is a volcano that is 23 kilometers high, is it, compared with 10 kilometers from Mauna Kea, the tallest volcano on our planet. Uh, it is thought to have been formed by a hot spot in Mars's mantle, but because the crust wasn't moving at all over that hot spot, it just kept pumping stuff out at the same place. Unlike the Hawaiian chain of islands, uh, which are dotted along a line because they've been carried along by the crustal movement of the Pacific plate. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you've got this succession of places where the hotspot has burst through and produced volcanoes. Um, unlike that, on Mars, you've just got one spot. It doesn't move. And so this stuff is generating... Uh, a large volcano over a long period of time. Now, what makes me think that there may have been, uh, there may have been plate tectonics very early in Mars's history is that I think there are traces of magnetism along linear features on Mars, which may have been the old plate boundaries. So maybe when Mars was hotter than it is now, at an earlier time in its history, its mantle had enough convection in it to cause plate tectonics to be happening. But they stopped, and their, their fossilized remains are what we see in some of the magnetic fields. Right. Uh, there are certain activities on Mars that are inexplicable even today, and that is um, some of the emissions that are being detected. Yeah, methas. Yeah, still trying to figure that out. Yeah, that's a good point. So... Something might still be happening deep under the surface 
but the thinking is it's not the the you know the core of Mars is too small for its heat to support plate tectonics. Right there you are, Martin. Um, but uh, yeah, good questions. Uh, and we do think in Mars's deep dark past there was liquid water for a brief time. Didn't yeah. We? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the evidence for that seems to be incontrovertible. So that mm. we've got a period which may have lasted, it could have lasted for the better part of a billion years, and that's long enough probably for living organisms to to uh, to generate if they're going to. And that's why there's so much excitement in these samples that we would like to see coming back from Perseverance, because they may contain evidence of the, those living organisms. Sorry, you'll have to just do that bit again. There was so much excitement, I think you were about to say. Uh, I did say it. Yeah, we didn't, <laughs> but I didn't hear we it. dropped it out. <laughs> I could see you you actually froze there as well, so mm. there is something going on. Sorry, Andrew. So the excitement, yes. So there may have been... Uh, so if Mars was warm and wet for up to a billion years, that may have been long enough for life to form, and that's why there's so much excitement in... Uh, awaiting the samples that Perseverance has been collecting, which one day we hope will come back to Earth. Yeah, we certainly hope so, and not hopefully it's not too long. We really want to know the answers. Mm. Uh, thank you, Martin. Looking forward to the book with uh, the Fred Watson Mars Base um, <laughs> front centre. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Fred? Oh, uh, look, I- uh, iconic. I'll take it however it comes. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because I was reading, um, I was reading a uh, the last chapter of uh, my book, Stargazer, which is about the history of telescopes, I'd forgotten this, but I set it to the last chapter on the 500th birthday of the telescope, which will be in 2108. And I was looking back at what has happened in the rest of the 20th century in astronomy. And um, one or two of the things are not far off the mark, actually, but I did mention uh, that... Um, uh, it was commonplace for astronauts to visit the Mandela base on Mars. Uh, so it wasn't the Fred Watson base, I'm afraid. Mandela base. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Martin. Uh, now we'll go to a question from uh, Robert, uh, who is not the same Robert as before. This is Robert from Norway. Hi, this is Robert from Norway. Oh, I was right. With <laughs> a potentially pointless question about dark matter, dark energy. I'm thinking about frequencies and waves. In audio mixing, there's phase cancellation when equal sound waves can reduce or eliminate the sound. Uh, Maybe the silence that's created actually is a new sound wave that could be called dark sound. And so could dark matter be invisible because whatever frequencies it would need to interact with us have been cancelled out? Or is this all nonsense? And it's more realistic that it just exists in a realm of frequencies we're unable to observe. Similarly, could dark energy be the byproduct of high energy interactions throughout the universe, such as antimatter and matter collisions, creating gamma rays where the opposite effect is dark energy? But that would mean such dramatic incidents are happening exponentially, which probably isn't the case. Please help. I've trapped myself. Love the show. Keep up the good work. I think we've all trapped ourselves, Robert, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, these arguments all end up in a trap, don't they? Mm. Uh, look, I, I'd, I'd really like Robert's thinking um, with, uh, you know, with frequencies, with waves. Um, and of course, uh, just as with sound waves, we use this cancelling effect in light and radio radiation as well. Interferometry, it's called, where radio waves or light waves actually cancel each other out and produce darkness or radio silence. Uh, It's how most radio telescopes work, in fact. They're interferometers where you measure these uh, bright and dark patches uh, caused by the addition and subtraction of of light waves with one another or radio waves. So it's a well-known and well-understood technique. Uh, So, um, But I like the idea of calling it dark uh, you know, dark sound. If you've got mm. cancellation of sound waves, do you produce dark sound? And I think the answer has to be uh, no. And it goes on to what, um, at, at least in in relation to it being a uh, an analog of dark energy. Uh, sorry, dark matter. Or dark energy. I can't remember which one he was talking about. <laughs> I think it was dark energy. Uh, so that you've got uh, cancellation causing some sort of dark 
thing that carries energy. Um, the, the thing is that uh, whatever dark energy is, it would we, you, we, there will be a time, I suspect in the future, where we talk about the dark energy field and maybe talk about it in terms of, of subatomic particles because mm. waves and particles are essentially uh, interchangeable. And so what would be the frequencies of dark energy particles? That's a really interesting question. Uh, and I, I'm not sure about the cancellation of this sort of thing. Uh, I think if you're cancelling waves out, you're going to have nothing rather than uh, some th- new phenomenon that has just darkness. Yeah. But I, I got myself in a trap there as well now. <laughs> I, I, I've actually experienced uh, radio waves cancelling each other out uh, yep. at home when, not in this place, but our previous house. We used to have a, a transmitter that would transmit what was on one TV to the other in the house. Yeah. yeah. It was on exactly the same frequency as the garage door opener. So it was on all the time. Yeah. And so whenever we tried to open the garage door, we couldn't because the, the frequencies TV. muted each other. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It wasn't much fun. It took me ages to figure out what was going on. Yeah. For a while there, we thought someone else nearby had the same frequency on their garage door opener. Oh, yeah. That's interfering as well. But it turned out to be the TV transmitter uh, in, in the house sending the picture to the other TV. Uh, Simple as that. Yeah, I've noticed um, a couple of times, if you go to the Black Mountain Tower in Canberra, which is a radio antenna producing Mm. frequencies of all kinds, uh, I noticed every time I went there that my, um, you know, the remote car key lock wouldn't work. And I wonder if it's the same sort of thing. Cancellation of... uh, of the radio frequency. I think you've probably got it. Yes. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, thank you, Robert. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, we're just about done, but we've got a little treat in store for you. And I um, I might regret this, but um, about five episodes ago, one Martin Berman Gorvine uh, sent us a song. And I said, you know, Paul hasn't sent us a song for some time. So... <laughs> Guess what's about to happen, Fred? Well, it looks so we might be being entertained, if you want to call it that. G'day, Fred. G'day, Andrew. It's Paul from Bris Vegas. Andrew, you asked for it. Here it is. Take your planet from the sun. Harder than a vindaloo. What? I don't want to hear you. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Okay. All right. I'll just ask my question normally. Okay. So here it is. So um, a team from Texas looking through the J, uh, the uh, J, what is it? Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope um, had a look at JHGS Z130, Z120, and Z110. And they were apparently originally identified as galaxies, but now they think they might be dark stars. So made of dark matter if so how the heck do they produce ordinary photons like wouldn't they produce dark photons photons or is it just the case that when you're squeezing stuff together uh lots of matter together in stars you produce a lot of heat and it's the heat itself that actually produces the photons is that how it works oh so if so does that mean when we rub our hands together and make them nice and hot we're producing heat, and so are we producing photons? And if so, does that mean we've got like two potential lightsabers at the end of our hands? Really cool if it is. Anyway, <laughs> guys, keep doing a great job. Have a good one. See ya. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I was more interested in the music version of the question, but and that's okay. Um, so if we do this, are we yep. producing photons? Uh, maybe infrared ones? You are. Absolutely. You are. <laughs> I got one right. Yeah, you are. Wavelength of about 10 10 microns there. That's the temperature of the human body. You increase your temperature a little bit on your hands and your hands will glow more brightly in an infrared camera because you're producing infrared photons. Um, The answer to Paul's question, though, and I think we did cover this when we we talked about those those dark matter stars, is that they don't just contain dark matter. They also contain normal matter. Uh, because the it's the dark matter um, that sort of generates the gravitational center uh, as it as it coalesces together, and you take normal matter with it, 
which is kind of compressed as a byproduct on the way. Uh, and the, the other thing was that the dark matter particles are self-annihilating. So they are themselves radiating uh, energy, uh, which um, is, is exciting the, the, the normal matter to become visible. I think that's the I think that was the story, if I remember rightly. So it's actually the the glowing that you see from the dark matter star comes from normal matter rather than the dark matter. And what um, I think what uh, gives it away as a dark matter star is it's much, much bigger than a normal star ever could be. It's wildly bigger than the size of the solar system. As a matter of fact. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. No. I knew you'd... <laughs> if you didn't say it, I would have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you, yeah, look, it, um, it's still a work in progress, that uh, uh, dark yeah, star that, theory, though, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. But I, love, I, love, yeah. I, love, I love Paul's musical question. That was yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, Who will be next, I wonder? Uh, thank you, Paul. Great to hear from you and your um, offspring, who obviously don't appreciate your talent, and I don't understand why. Um, that brings us to the end of the show, Fred. Oh, by the way, if you do have questions for us, please send them in. We'd love to hear from you. Just go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, and there are links there to send us text and audio questions, the AMA tab at the top, or the send us your voice message on the right-hand side. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from before you ask the question so that we know who to credit. Uh, Fred, thanks as always. Been a great pleasure and good fun. A uh, few uh, questions of similar ilk today, but um, lots of variety as well. Glad we were able to do a history lesson with Buddy, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Quite so. Mm. All right, Fred, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Sounds good. Thank you, Andrew. Take care. You too. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio. Um, don't know why, but anyway, uh, he might turn up next week. And from me... <laughs> Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.